and go ahead and take out your Bibles if you have them and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. So you might notice we're getting close to the end of the book of Romans and we're actually starting our last section in the book of Romans. And the sections, we've kind of uh, have words that start with S to help us understand. This is what Paul is explaining and probably what he's teaching is he's going around on his missionary journeys and he speaks about sin. That's what he does in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. talks about all different types of of sinners, if you read through Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18 through 32, you kind of feel like, yeah, those sinners. And then he shifts and he starts talking about different kinds of sinners, moral sinners, religious sinners, skeptic sinners, basically covers all the categories so no one's without excuse. And then he transitions in verse 21 of chapter 3, and uh, by that time, if you're going along looking at all this sin, it's, it's such a relief to get to chapter 3, verse 21, because he starts talking about salvation. And this salvation is a, a salvation that's outside of human beings. It's not in us to procure our own salvation, but we need to look something else to find our righteousness and something else and that is Jesus Christ. So from chapter 3 verse 21 to the end of chapter 5 he talks about salvation and then in chapter 6 he begins to talk about what happens after salvation and that's sanctification. So he begins to explain uh, how we grow in Christ and the importance of growing in Christ and he does that all the way to the end of chapter 7, and then in chapter 8, uh, or chapter 9, I'm sorry, so he does that to the end of chapter 8, and then in chapter 9, he begins to talk about God's sovereignty. He does that by looking at the nation of Israel, and looking at how God has fulfilled His promises to the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, he looks at the past of Israel. In chapter 10, he looks at the present of Israel. In chapter 11, he looks at the future of Israel, and all of that is meant for us to look at Israel and say God is faithful, and He is faithful to complete what He started. So we look at Israel, we have to know He's going to be faithful to us, to each one of you, and His calling in your life, and to finish the course, finish the plan that He has for your life. He says in, in chapter 11 that His gifts and His calling callings are irrevocable, and so that should give us the confidence to go on in the things of the Lord, no matter what the obstacles, no matter the difficulties, not because of anything in us, but because of God's promises, that His promises are as good as done. So now we get into the last part of the book, chapter 12 through chapter 16, and he talks about serving, service. This is sort of where, where all of chapter 1 through 11, if you're to gather it all together and put it in a, a very a, a practical way, it's about serving the Lord now. And so that's why he starts off chapter 12, verse 1, this way. He says, I beseech. 
Do any of you beseech things? Have you ever said that word before other than reading the Bible? Have you ever told somebody, I beseech you? Well, you probably haven't because you're not comfortable with that word. Uh, most people aren't. And basically, what it means is he's appealing to us. He's appealing to his audience. He's appealing in a way where he's saying, for 11 chapters, I've told you all about the glories of God. So now I'm appealing to you. So of course, uh, they didn't have chapters back then, so he wasn't saying that. But he was saying, everything that I've just written, so now you have to understand, you have to do something with what I just wrote. And, and what were some of the things that, that he wrote? He, he wrote about the glories of God, that we can have a righteousness in Christ, that it's not of us, but it's of Him, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that those who are in Christ, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ, that they have an inheritance. And all of these things, that He's gathered and composed and taught, and now He's saying, I'm beseeching you. He's saying, look, don't be people who just say, Yes, yes and amen. I heard all that. I understand all that. He's saying, now you got to do something with that. He's saying chapter, chapters 1 through 11 has legs. And the legs start in chapter 12. Meaning there's, there's action. He's, he's appealing. He's saying there's something amazing. There's something beyond what a human mind can really grasp and, and understand. His ways are far beyond our ways. And he's saying, I'm telling you, God is so amazing. God is so good. I'm beseeching you. So now you can beseech other people. You can beseech your kids to pick up their rooms. You can beseech your spouses to go on a date with you. So just be start beseeching each other. You can start now if you want, or you can do it later. But beseech people. So what is he beseeching us about? He says, I beseech you, therefore, again, you Bible students know that's a connecting word. Therefore means, based on everything I just said, I'm beseeching you. And then he says, brethren. So what does that mean? Why is that important? He's talking to believers. So this is for believers. Believers are being beseeched right now. Beseeched according to what? By the mercies of God. So we're being beseeched not in regards to a discipline or a punishment or a threat. He, he's saying, look, I want you to get and, and understand what I'm about to tell you is based on mercies. And we can look at that as in, and say the goodness of God or the things that God is withholding from us in punishment and judgment because of our position in Him. All the goodness of God. He's saying, the goodness of God is what I'm appealing to you about to do something in regards to. And what is that? Here, so here's the thing. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So when he's saying that, he's... He's now saying, because of everything that God has done and who you now are in Christ and you're standing in Him 
in His goodness and giftedness, His withholding of His judgment and punishment. He's saying, here's, here's what is... If you understand what He's saying, here's what it, it's only reasonable to do that. He's saying it's only reasonable because to know the goodness of God would be such that what one would want to offer or present themselves to the goodness of God. Make yourself available to the goodness of God. Sign up for the goodness of God. Be present. Be ready to receive. That's what he's saying when he's saying to present yourself to Him as a living sacrifice. Now, why, why is he using those terms and that phrase and those words and things like that? A living sacrifice because what he's saying is and he's he's sort of referencing and referring to old testament sacrifices where they would be, bring an animal to be sacrificed and what he is saying to the jewish mind would completely blow them away maybe we don't pick up enough of what he's saying because what would be required of an offering that would be perfect. It would be without blemish, right? You couldn't bring a blemish animal to be sacrificed. The sacrifice had to be unblemished, and it had to be perfect. So he's telling us to bring ourselves like that. But see, that's where you have to understand what he's said prior to this, because he's, he's now saying that we're able to bring ourselves as a holy acceptable sacrifice because now we're in Christ. What he's saying is now we can do that. That as those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they can do something that would have never been thought of before. That not an animal would be brought, but a person would be brought. Not something outside of the person for the person sacrificed, an animal, but the very person themselves, why? Because that person has made, been made holy in Christ. That person is now in Christ and they're able to bring themselves to God because they are in Christ, blameless, spotless, sinless in Christ. And we are accepted by Him. So we can do this. So this is, what Paul is saying, is this is an opportunity that we have as believers that now we can actually present ourselves right to God. And say, here we are, God. I am here to receive all that you have for me. And what's required to do that is that we would be living sacrifices. So that word living is in there because it's being contrasted with a dead sacrifice. So they would bring these sacrifices to the high priest and they would kill the animal and the blood would be applied. And, and he's saying now that your sacrifices, it, it's, you've already died in Christ. So you've been crucified in Christ. It's no longer you who live, 
but it's Christ who lives in you. Now you can present yourself to God in, in, in an ongoing way to receive the things of God by denying the things of yourself. So that's what it means to be a living sacrifice, that you're denying the things of yourself, you're dying to yourself, but you're alive to the things of God. And then he says, to truly understand would only be reasonable to do that. So it would be unreasonable not to do that, right? Does that make sense? It would be unreasonable. So it would be unreasonable to say, I'm in Christ. He's forgiven me of all my sins. He set his love upon me. And now I'm going to live my own life apart from God. I'm going to live by my will and not his will. And he's saying that is so unreasonable. That doesn't make any sense. Because why would one go back to a life that they've been saved from? Why would one go back to a life, as, as Paul said earlier in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is what? Is death. Why would you go back to that? Because there's a whole new thing now. And that's where alive to the things of God and then practically how, how we live that out is we, we do that by dying to ourselves, And we say, God, live in me. Live through me. Be alive in me and through me. And so that's what it means. That's what Paul is saying. So he's appealing to that. So what do we think? You don't have to raise your hand, but is his appeal successful to you? Is your way better? Is there a way that you live your own life apart from that, that that would be an improvement to that? Well, let's look a little further to see and, and sort of get a better idea of what he's saying. So then in verse 2, he says, in regards to this living sacrifice, and by the way, this is, if you're a Christian, this is how you live your life. This is basically the explanation of how you live your life as a believer. He says, do not be conformed, to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So part of his appeal, so in a way he's trying to convince us. And part of his convincing, he gives us, there's, there's three things that he's saying that, that happen if we allow God to live through our life. And if he doesn't, if God does not do that, then what, what the other option is, is that we are going to be subject to the world. That's why he says, don't be conformed to the world. What a message for today. The word uh, conformed, would be a word that's used to, to put pressure on one to fit them into a mold. So that's what the world is trying to do. The world is trying to put pressure from the outside to make us into its mold. So there's a, a definite, distinct pressure 
that the world exerts on people so that those people fit its image. So just think of like Plato and how you shape something and mold something. You have to put pressure on it, right, to make it be the thing you want it to be. And so the world is doing that. So that's one option. And believers have been saved from that option because the world had made us into its image. The world had its stamp on us. And everybody, before they come to Christ, they live for the world. The world tells them what to do, what's important, tells them what to love, what to be ambitious about, what's uh, significant. And the world tells us all those things. And before we're born again, we say, okay. And we live our life that way. And when we live our life that way, just like a Plato being formed, we start to look like the world. We talk like the world, we act like the world, we think like the world. And so now Paul's saying you don't have to do that anymore. And he's appealing to us, beseeching us, so that we, we would know and understand that that's not a good alternative. So if you're, you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, that's not such a bad alternative, that I look like the world, act like the world, live like the world. Well, the Bible says that Satan is in charge of the world. So basically, to live for the world is to have Satan as your influence, as your boss, be in the bondage of Satan. And John, the Apostle John says, all that is in the world could be summed up in the lust of the flesh. What is that? My body, bodily appetites tell me what to do. They control me. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, what's that? The lust of the eye is I see, I want. That's why so many commercials appeal to you. It's amazing to me how many commercials for breakfast are on at like 10 o'clock at night. Because then you wake up and you want that. You want that sausage McMuffin with egg when you see it at night. Because advertisers know that there's something about the world and the flesh that they use to make us buy stuff. And now it's so easy, right? Just one click away and you could have something at your doorstep. You don't even have to go out. And they'll give you a discount even. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff just starts showing up at your house. It's amazing. It's colossal. It's Amazon. <laughs> but see, that's what happens is, is the world dictates to us what we want. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and then the pride of life. So the pride of life is we have all that stuff. So people think we made it. We've arrived. Look at what we have. So that's, that's what's in the world. That's what the world says. That's an important life. That's a significant life. That's what makes a life valuable. And here comes the gospel. And the gospel comes and says, that life will kill you. You are dead in your trespasses of sins. 
And when one goes down that road far enough, they find that it does not satisfy. And in many cases, it'll actually destroy you if you go down that road far enough. Many of you were destroyed by being conformed to the world. And now you've been set free and saved. So you know that. So, it, so that's one option, and, and there's one guarantee on that option. So the, the option of conforming to the world is a guarantee. It'll keep you out of heaven. And you will have a passing pleasure of sin, but the end of that way is destruction. If you are following that way, you're, you're on a broad road that leads to what? Destruction. That's where you're going. There's no other way. And generation after generation has said, maybe it won't be so bad. Maybe there's another way. Maybe the things of what God's Word says, maybe there's a loophole. Maybe there's something different. And so that's the deception that Satan hypnotizes people with to think that, well, the way of the world's not so bad. But if you were to remove the mask, and sometimes we get to, sometimes we get to see like what's behind some of these things that are so important in this world, and behind the mask is Satan controlling things. So that's one option. The other option is to be transformed. Now that word is where we get our word for metamorphosis, and that means to change from the inside. It's the same word that we would use for a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. So now Paul is saying, here's another opportunity. In chapters 1 through 11, I've showed you how good God is, and now you can present yourself to God because you're saved and born again. You can, you can present yourself and say, Lord, have your way on me. And when, when you're doing that, you're presenting yourself to His goodness, His favor, His blessings, His mercy, and you're saying, okay, Lord, live through me. It's no longer I who live, but it's you who living, are living in me. And we su surrender to his will. And what happens is we start to change from the inside out. That's what metamorphosis is. We change from the inside out. And as we change from the inside out, it's God working in us to make us more like him. And he says through the renewing of our Mind And what that means is that our past thinking patterns that were worldly thinking patterns, that were thinking patterns that were conformed to the world, that were being dictated to by the world, being told how to think and, and what to think. And isn't it amazing when you become a believer, your mind is different. You think different. You, you see things different. So there's a transformation that goes on. And then you start to feed your mind with the things of God like you're doing tonight. And your mind is just continually changing by the Word of God being fed into your mind and the power of the Holy Spirit that takes this Word and implants it in your mind and you begin to see things differently. And how do you see things differently? You see them like Christ sees them. What does that mean? That means you see them as they truly are. That means that you understand life correctly. You understand what's important. You understand 
eternal things. You understand spiritual things. You understand the nature of God and the nature of man and the nature of the world. And that's why when the Bible gets a hold of someone, it's, it's addicting. Because the truth is addicting. Being set free and knowing the truth and understanding the truth is very addicting. So this is Paul beseeching us. Are we being beseeched? Are you being convinced? Is it better? And, and so he ends verse 2, and he appeals, and, and he says, it's just reasonable. If you truly understand things, it wouldn't make any sense to live any other way but to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. But then he says that when you, when you put your life in God's hands and give him control of your life, there's a word he uses, proof. That you may prove. So what happens is, and, and it only happens this way, right? So if, if you're a Christian and you never surrender control to God, it doesn't happen. It only happens if you present yourself to God and let Him start to work in your life. If not, you're missing out, you, and you, you'll never get to experience the fullness of everything that God has for you. So your life will then prove that the way you live your life is good, it's acceptable, and it's the perfect will of God. So now, this is amazing. So now, as you give your life to God, it's His responsibility because we've given him responsibility for our life, to show how good he is through how he works in our life. Do you remember earlier in the book of Romans that Paul said that he wanted to make the Jews jealous, provoke them to jealousy, he said, because of how Christ worked in his life? And so now the burden, so we, we shift control and responsibility of our life over to God. We say, your will be done, and now God goes to work. And as he goes to work, he's going to work inside of you. And as he goes to work inside of you, he's working to show the world his goodness by how he treats you. Now that doesn't mean that you won't have difficulty and problems. What it means that God shows off even in difficulty and problems. He shows himself better and more powerful and able to get one through anything, anytime, anywhere. But he also brings about order and beauty to a person's life. So he's beseeching us. I hope we're besought. I don't know if that's a word, but I hope we're besought now. I hope we say, because this is a problem, isn't it? It's a problem that, that so many people name the name of Christ, and yet they're just completely uninterested. And I, I like to say this a lot because I see this happen all the time. When somebody is saying they're a Christian, but they're really just doing their own thing. That's why there's so many weird things in Christianity. There's so many weird things that people come up with. And so many discussions you might find yourself in with people is because simply because they're saying they're Christian, but they're just doing their own thing. 
As Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? It's that sort of thing. Like, I'm just doing my own thing, but I'll say I'm a Christian. Here, Paul's appealing. He's saying, don't do that. Because you're going to miss out on what God has for you. You're not going to experience the fullness of what God has. And not only that, if you live your life for yourself, it's not going to prove that God is good. His will is perfect and acceptable. It's not going to prove that. So now you can see why we need missionaries in our country, not sending them out. We need them here. So verse 3, he says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But instead, think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. He's saying that because he knows what happens when one experiences verses 1 and 2. And they, they start to experience the, the working of God through their life. And you know what happens? Satan comes in and says, wow, you're really amazing. I don't know what Christianity would do without you. And I don't know what the church would do without you. So there's another temptation. And the temptation should be encouraging because... It feels so amazing when God uses us to bring forth fruit for His kingdom. It's amazing. And so he, he says to think soberly because we could be drunk or high, not in a good way, on our own success in how God uses us. So then he deals with that. He's saying... So when I do use you, and you do see verse 1 and 2 are so amazing, he says, don't think too much about yourself. Settle down, buckaroo, in other words. Just take it easy. Okay, this is great, and yes, God is using you, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But just understand, don't think much of yourself, because God deals each one, so every person... He gives them what they need to do verses 1 and 2. So that's what he's saying in, in verse 3, that he's given to everyone this grace or this measure of faith. So that's really good too. Because now we understand that God knows exactly how much to give each, each person. So you notice a, a measure of faith. So it, it sounds like he's like cooking and using, you know, measuring, a measuring cup and a measuring spoon or whatever. And he's using it and he's sort of giving every person this, what they need. Now why is that important? Because it's so comforting to know I don't have to be anything other than God's called me to be. Nothing more. I shouldn't be anything less. 
But I don't have to look at somebody else and say, man, look at how they're using, God's using that person and be upset or feel slighted or feel like I didn't, I'm not being effective. But if we'll simply just present ourselves to God and surrender ourselves to God and say, Lord, work through me then He knows how much to give us for what He's called us to do exactly. So what that means is, our whole job is to simply be faithful. That's it. That's all we'll actually be responsible for. is just being faithful to what God has given us. So they just had a big harvest crusade. And they moved it to, I think it's called the Honda Center in Anaheim, away from Anaheim Stadium because Major League Baseball, they've been doing it at Anaheim Stadium for like 30 years. Major League Baseball said they didn't want them to do it there anymore because it might mess up the grass. So they had to move it inside. That's not my point. My point is, so somebody could look at, at Greg Laurie and say, man, he does movies and he does Harvest Crusades and he has a big church, and all this stuff, and say, welcome, what's wrong with me? None of that. God's, did you know God's not impressed with that, with what Greg's Laurie's doing? Because God's doing that. So God's not patting himself on the back. God's just saying, well, there's, there's a guy that presented himself to me, and I'm working through him, so in no way, shape, or form can Greg Laurie say, wow, I'm really hot stuff and special, and I don't think he does. But who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Because whenever you see a great work of God, it's just God. Whenever you see a small work of God, it's just God. And that's the freedom that we have, is we can just be free to be obedient to the Lord, but we do have to be faithful. And that's why he says, that he's given us each a measure, but our responsibility, it goes back to the sacrifice part, that we have to be willing to put God's will over our will. That's, that's our part. And that's where we grow in the things of the Lord. And there are times where we have to do things that we don't feel like, but God's calling us to do, just to be faithful. And as we do those things, and, and you know, probably a lot of you made some sacrifices to be here tonight. And so it's not always just super easy, but, but when you say, Lord, that's what you want me to do, and I'm going to be faithful to do that, then that's where God just pours out His blessings. And the, the blessings are according to His measure. He doesn't have the same way to measure things like we do. His measuring stick... And this is really important because the world, when Christians apply the world's methods to success to Christianity, it completely messes Christianity up. God doesn't use those same methods. So his measure of success is simply that we are faithful to the measure of faith that he's given us. And that's it. So what's required of a steward or a servant or one who takes care of the things of God, what's required, what's required is simply to be faithful. And the good thing is, is he's measured out 
enough faith for us to do that. So our job is to simply be obedient to the things that He's already given us, meaning we, we can do that, we have the ability to do that, just be faithful, and He takes our little bit of faithfulness and like supercharges it. And there are things that happen from our simple faithfulness that we will never see or know on earth, but they echo in eternity. So the confidence that we have is that God will take our simple obedience because He's actually given us that. He's given us the measure that we can do that. So don't ask me to go and speak at the Honda Center next week. I could not do that. I would forget everything I was saying. I would probably sweat to an embarrassing amount. I'd be nervous. But if God called me to do that, I could walk right in there and, and do that no problem. So just be faithful to your thing. But here's the key. Be faithful to your thing. Don't be unfaithful to your thing. Don't neglect the gift that God has given you. He's going to talk about that more in a second. In verse 4, he says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So that's very profound. So here, he's talking about the body of Christ. So we can look at the body of Christ, one, as the universal body of Christ. What's that? Every true believer in the whole world across the earth. That's the overall universal body of Christ. But then you have local bodies of Christ. That's us. That's all these different churches around and things like that. So... Believers in a certain area, he gathers them together to, for that place to be a gathering place to Acts 2.42, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, and doctrine. And if you look at the early church, it was very simple. It wasn't entertainment-oriented. It wasn't geared towards appealing to people's flesh and getting them all fleshed out and all into emotions. But what they had, because of their simplicity and their unity, they had the power of the Holy Spirit working through them to the extent where they, didn't want, they wouldn't want any of that other stuff. Because all that other stuff is fake. When you have the real thing, do you want fake things? You want the real thing. So now what we have as a church... Now we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the authentic church. And this is how God gets things done through the church, through people like you and me. So you, you think about, now God is saying there, there are many members, but there's one body. And now what he's saying is, 
each individual members and he's comparing it to like body parts. He does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we have one body, but there's different parts of the body. Eyes, ears, arms, fingers, you know, that sort of thing. So he's saying there's diversity, meaning there's different gifts. That's why it's so important to not covet someone else's gift or what someone else is doing or aspire to, to take over or be some big shot. You don't want to be in a position that you have not been gifted for. But you do want to be in a position that you have been gifted for. And it's amazing. And so the Spirit is working in every believer's life, particularly for the local body. In other words, God has given each one, every believer has spiritual giftings to build up the local body of Christ. So that's the primary area of gift usage. Not the only area, but the primary area. And it's up to each individual to move off the couch, so to speak, in their Christian faith and begin to use their spiritual gifts first and foremost within the body of Christ. What happens when someone does that? It builds up the body of Christ. Is that a good thing? What happens when one neglects their gift that has been given to them? The body of Christ suffers. So this is what he's saying. We each, and this is amazing. This is where Christianity takes off, becomes real. This is where we experience God working through us. The power of God. There's so much talk oftentimes about revival and supernatural things and all that. And we should want that. But how does it work? That works the simplest way by every member of the body of Christ, let's just say the local body, just using their gift. And then you have this supernatural thing going on in that body when that individual is using that gift. Verse 5, he says, So we being many are one body in Christ and are individual, individually members of one another, having gifts, these are spiritual gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us, what? What does that say? Let us use them. I couldn't hear you guys. Let me read that again. Having gifts differing. That's, that's why this is important. Because I can't do what God has gifted you to do. And you can't do what God has gifted me to do. I need you, and you need me. We all need each other. You need a person sitting next to you, person sitting behind you. We need each other. You have a gift. Use it. 
Let me read that again. I'm going to beseech you. <laughs> Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Why is that so hard? And then he talks about some of the gifts. Well, let's look at that. If you have the gift of prophecy, what does that mean? That's not as much future casting and future telling than it is forth telling. Having the gift of prophecy is one who's able to speak forth the word of God. There can be a future element we see with the prophets in the Old Testament. Obviously, they're called prophets, so they had the gift of prophecy. And there, there weren't, it wasn't just all future casting. Some of it was, but some was just speaking the word of God to the people, calling them to repentance, encouraging them, telling them about the things of God, the ways of God. In our day and age, this... Uh, this gift, so this is a gift that the church needs. If it's listed here, the church needs it. God doesn't just mess around, just write random stuff. So the church needs someone that can speak forth the word of God to build up the body of Christ. Absolutely essential. How is one with this gift to use this gift. He says, if you have the gift of prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So he gives us an explanation of how these gifts particularly are supposed to be used. So one who speaks forth the word of God, they need, need to do it according to faith. Why? Because oftentimes, do you remember what happened to the prophets? They're mostly killed. That's why you need to have faith when you speak forth the word of God. Because a lot of times people don't like it, and they don't like you. You can't speak forth the word of God if you're worried about what people think about you, and if you're overly concerned about hurting people's feelings above the truth. So you have to have a, a measure of faith that God gives you to be able to say the things that he puts on your heart. So that's what one has to have to use that gift. So what else? Or, in verse 7, or ministry. If you have the gift of ministry, what does that mean? That just means serving. So that means um, the, the word for deacon is the same word for this word ministry. There's some people that just, they just serve. And they feel comfortable doing that. And they enjoy doing that. They feel God working in their heart. They have a, a sense of accomplishment and a sense of being. So these are the per people in church that, that you notice a lot of things happening around here that we enjoy as we walk in. It's because many other people with the gift of ministry, are making it possible. So if you have the gift of ministry, if you just enjoy serving, if you're one of those that just have this unusual gift of just 
serving and doing things. This is what you need to do. Let us use it in our serving. So that sounds simple, right? Why does he say it like that? So if you have the gift of serving, you just like to serve, you just like to help out. You see a need and you just got to get in there and, and help out that need. Well, he, he says, if you have that, just understand, do it as using your gift. He says that, the gift of ministering. Why? Because you might have a feeling sometimes, Satan will come and tempt you and say, what you're doing is, is meaningless, nobody cares, you don't, not too many people thank you for it, a lot of people don't even know you do it. So what he's saying is just know you have that gift and just use it. And don't worry about how many thanks you get and pats on your back. Pray for someone with the gift of exhortation, which we'll see later, who will come encourage you. Maybe your church doesn't have that yet, so pray for those people to come. But he says just find your satisfaction and joy just in serving. So then he says, he who teaches in teaching. So if you have a teaching gift then the simple exhortation is use it, to actually use it. But it's important when you teach to use your teaching gift. So one is use or take opportunities to use your gift. It doesn't matter where, when, or how. It could be in the children's church. It could be in a home study. It could be with your own family. But basically, you're not going to be happy and fulfilled until you're teaching. But make sure you're using your gift of teaching. You have a supernatural gift of teaching. That means you have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Don't rely upon your own academics, how smart you may be. If you're a really smart person, some teachers have, have a natural gift of charisma. And that's a scary gift to have if you have the gift of teaching because you can end up just using your charisma and people will like you because of that and not using your gift of teaching. Obviously the best is to be yourself and to trust in the Lord but what happens is say if you're super intelligent which I don't have to worry about that or if you're super charismatic, I don't have to worry about that. Praise the Lord. But if you have those, don't rely upon those. But look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Look for Him to reveal Himself to you. Look for Him to bring the application. Look for Him to bring supernatural things to the Word of God. So that's the gift of teaching. And then he says, He who exhorts. In exhortation. So there's an actual gift of exhortation. And that means to encourage. Basically to encourage. It can mean with a little force, like a high school football coach type of exhortation. And some people need that. Some people need a little kick in the rear. Some people need a little, let's go, man. Let's come on. You know, let's go. Like, you know, spotter on bench press. Two more, man. Come on. You can get it. Come on. That kind of thing. Some people need a gentle exhortation, you know, just a little gentler. But someone with the gift of exhortation, 
He's saying to, to use that gift because you may keep silent and you have the gift of exhortation. You, people need to be encouraged. That's, that's one of the... People are using their gifts. One of the greatest needs that they have is to be encouraged, to be exhorted. So you can look at that exhorted as being encouraged. Or just um, the, gift, the person that has the gift of ministry, just encourage them, exhort them. Let them, them know that, you know, be a Barnabas, a son of encouragement, someone who comes along and encourages, encourages people to do that. So some of you just naturally have a gift like that. You just exhort people, encourage people. And then he says, he who gives, give liber- uh, with liberty, liberality, I should say. So there's actually people who have a gift of giving. This, uh, there's a lot of ways to give, time, energy, effort, money, finances. This is mainly speaking of those who have the, the, the gift of finances. They have the gift of earning and the gift of giving those earnings. And he said, he's saying, if you have a gift, so that's an actual gift, a spiritual gift. There are actual people that have the spiritual gift of making money. And those people are to use that gift to build up the church through their funds and their finances. So he's encouraging people like this not to be people who are stubborn with their money, to recognize and understand that they have these funds and these finances simply because God's given them the ability to do that primarily for the purpose to build up the body of Christ. So then he says, he who leads, do that with diligence. And that's probably referring to someone who has an administrative gift. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So these people, I think that's a good exhortation for someone who has the gift of leading or the gift of administration that they do it diligently because you have to stay on top of stuff if you're an administrative person. You have to be really good on staying on top of stuff and making sure everything is in order, all your ducks in a line. So some people are really gifted in that. And then there are other people who are really not. But you put those two together... And there you go. You have you know, the need of different people in the body of Christ. So then he says, He who shows mercy, do that with cheerfulness. Why is that? So people with the gift of mercy are the real soft-hearted people. And when you're real, really soft-hearted and you see other people, you're, you're moved with compassion to hurting people, he says to do that cheerfully because that can wear you down. Just taking everybody's pain and hurt and going through all these difficult things with all these different different people and because you're so soft-hearted, it's an actual spiritual gift. We're just so soft-hearted towards other people. He said, just be careful that you don't get bitter with that gift, but that you do it cheerfully, that you understand that God made you and has given you the spiritual gift to use to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And boy, how I'm thankful for everybody on this list, and especially those who stir these gifts up and use these gifts. So, verse 9 
Are we going to make it? Well, we'll see. So now he goes into, I believe we're going to, don't look at the clock. I know you're tempted to. Do not look at the clock. No, you can look at it if you want. So, so now he goes in and just starts listing all of these behaviors and ways that we're to be as we present ourselves to God and we allow God to use us. And these, I would just ask you as a church body, two things. And we're going to get through this because I'll probably go pretty quick, Lord willing, through this. But one, I ask you to pray about using your gift because we all need your gift. This body needs your gift. Two, as we go through this list, this is sort of an explanation of how we are to be as believers towards one another. And especially you think about that in the body of Christ. So pray that our church would be like this. Okay? Can you do that? Those two things? Let's all agree to do those two things. So here we go. Let love be without hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy is where you get the word for actor, where they would put on a mask. So he's saying, love one another, but don't let, don't let it be love with a mask. In other words, if in your heart you don't feel the way that you're acting towards someone, spend time on your knees so that your heart can express your true love for those other people. And sometimes when people rub you the wrong way or they hurt you or slight you or those things, Satan is looking to get a foothold in your life. He's looking to get a foothold within the church. He's looking to get a foothold to cause you to not stir up and use your gift. So that's very important. Don't just act loving. Be loving from your heart. And you know in order to do that, you have to be on your knees. You have to be praying about any bitterness, unforgiveness, or any hurt in your heart that you're harboring or carrying out. A church like that that is infested with people that are bitter is not a church I want to be a part of. It's not a church any of you would want to be a part of either. But we all are susceptible to that. That's why we all need to make sure that our heart is right towards God and therefore towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Very important. Hate what is evil. Abhor or hate. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another. That shows that there's it's not passive. Being kindly affectionate is not passive. And it's not waiting for other people to do that to us. That's the prerogative and priority that God has put on every believer to be like that towards other people. To be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. So that's a huge one because that's one of the things that you'll hear and that's one of the things that a new person will experience in a positive or negative way 
is whether they felt the love within the church body or they did not feel the love within that church body. And what this is saying is that every believer, God has given each one the responsibility not to be loved, but to be kindly affectionate towards one another. Hopefully, you'll be loved too. But this is saying you be the one that goes and loves other people. You be the one that exerts the love of Christ in your heart towards other people. So important. And it's easy to forget. And hopefully, if you've come to this church, you've been the recipient of someone reaching out to you. You remember your first time coming in? I don't remember my first time, but maybe you do. How are you greeted? Who came over when you're standing there awkwardly and hoping that someone would talk to you? Who came over and talked to you? Who's asking you out to coffee? Who's asking you out to dinner? If you've been the recipient of that, man, now you're part of it. You need to do that to other people too. You need to reach out. And it's so easy for us as believers just to sit and not go out of our often comfort zone. But here we're being exhorted to do that. So I'm using my gift of exhortation to do that. So then he says in verse 11, not lagging in diligence. So don't be complacent or lazy, but I love this. Be fervent in what? In spirit serving the Lord. How are we to serve the Lord? This one is huge. In serving the Lord, we're not to lack in diligence. We're not to let things slide. We're not to say, well, it doesn't matter. We're not to say, well, I don't get paid or nobody's thanking me. Why? Because we do it as unto the Lord. Whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. So how should we do something if we're doing it to the Lord? We should do it fervently. And that, that word just means with passion. Like whatever you do, to me, one of the most amazing things is to see anybody with any job, I don't care what it is, to do it with passion. I love that. I love, I actually take time, whatever I'm doing, when I hear the trash truck come, I go and look. Because it's amazing to me. My trash guys are amazing. They do such a good job, and I'm just... I'm always telling tomorrow, should I put this out? They won't take this. They won't take this. They take everything. They don't even care what it is. They take an old car if I put it out there. They take everything. I'm like, these guys are amazing. So I don't care what it is. Be like that. Serve. Do what you do is unto the Lord and do it with passion. It's amazing to watch people. Go to Brahms after and see if they're passionate when they scoop that ice cream in there. I want my Brahms person to be passionate about it. I don't want to be like their 80th scoop and like, oh, can't wait to get home. I want to see them excited. I want to see them passionate about it. And I am. I'm sensitive to people that aren't passionate. I hate when I go to the store and they don't even look at, they're like bagging your groceries and don't look at you. And you're like, oh, thank you. And I'm like, What's wrong? Look at me. Anyway, 
We should never be like that as Christians. We should be passionate. Serving the Lord. That's why we're passionate. Rejoicing in hope. Do not look at the clock, anybody. <laughs> Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing. You might want to circle that word. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. What does that mean? That means kind to the stranger. So many ways to look at that. But look at that within the church. It would, you guys would bless me so much if you're kind to those new people that come in. That's a huge blessing. When I actually see you doing that, it blesses me so much. Because I, I just, it's, it's really can be very awkward to walk into a new place. So given the hospitality, verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. We did a whole message on that last Sunday. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I was thinking about that. What's harder to do? I think in many cases, it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because sometimes we say, how come they're getting all that great stuff and I'm not? So don't be like that. Because when God blesses one of us, what? He blesses all of us. I love to see the Lord blessing you guys. Just not too much because it makes me feel bad, but... A little bit. Just a little bit. No, seriously. I love to see God blessing you. And when you have a whole church body, that when, when God does something in their life, and they can't wait to come in and tell everybody, this is what the Lord did. It's amazing. But then, of course, we need to be a church body that weeps with those who weep. And we, we do that. And then he says... Verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. How do we do that? Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So we should strive to be peacemakers, to glorify God with the understanding that there are times where our efforts will not be reciprocated. If it's possible, be at peace with all men. So our job is to make sure that from our standpoint, we're doing everything we can to be at peace with someone, but it's okay if it's not reciprocated when we know that we've done right in the sight of the Lord. We can have peace knowing that we did what we could. Verse 18, um, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire, on his head, that's probably there's a lot of confusion what that actually means. The best that I've seen is 
in the, the Egyptian culture, when someone was admitting they were wrong or exhibiting some shame over something they did, they would carry hot coals on their head in like a bowl, not right on their head. And it would just show everybody uh, that they're admitting they were wrong, showing public shame, a sign of humility. So he's saying our kindness towards people who have wronged us or slighted us will actually bring about a shame to that person. It's hard to be hateful to someone who's kind and loving back. Not impossible. Some people are really gifted at that. But in general, you know what I mean. So let's finish. Do not, or do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's how we do it. We just do good, look to do good, look to bless, look to be a blessing, use our gifts, and let God be in control. So that's what it means to present ourselves to God as holy, living, sacrifice. Don't look at the clock. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. My brothers and sisters who have come tonight, I pray a blessing upon them, Lord. Use them, guide them, stir their hearts, pour out your spirit upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night. And don't forget, Pastor Brian from Haiti, Lord willing, is supposed to be here on Sunday. So don't miss that. It's going to be awesome.